We're going to read from uh, Galatians chapter 2. Good morning to everyone. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me but on the contrary when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was given to Peter for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles and when James Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came with James, they would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through the first part of verse 17. And I'll explain kind of that odd uh, division there in just a little bit. But we want to think about this. Is there a king in your heart? If you are a believer then Jesus does live in you. But what I want us to think about is what role does he play there? 
does he sit quietly in the corner until you need him? Does he just shrug his shoulders when you don't give him the time of day? Does he obey the keep out sign on those private rooms? And you know the rooms I'm talking about, the ones that you don't let anyone go into. Does he look the other way when you sin? If you say, well, you know, that pretty much sums it up, then I want to ask, is Jesus really there? Is he in your heart? He's the Lord of creation. He's the King of kings. And so shouldn't his presence be obvious if he is actually in your heart? Well, let's change the picture for just a minute. We'll come back to Jesus in your heart, uh, that for us to envision that. But picture him coming to live at your house, not your heart as your house, but just your house where you live right now. Okay, so if you picture that, so Jesus shows up at the door, he rings the doorbell, knocks on the door, and you're like, oh my, hi, uh, Jesus. And he's like, well, I've, I've come to live here. And, well, he's the king of kings, you can't tell him no, right? Uh, okay, hmm, all right. And you're thinking about, you know, the dirty dishes and, you know, the... You haven't cleaned for a while, and you know, oh my, and you rush around and trying to clean stuff up. Will you tell him, okay, Lord, um, you, you can't go in there. You know the closet that you have, or you know the the dresser drawer that's got all the junk in it, or whatever. You know, you can't go in there. Or, um, hmm, Lord. Uh, don't get on that computer, please. Or uh, don't don't go on, don't get on my phone, my cell phone. Think about it. it. It should be a little scary to think that Jesus would come and actually live in your house with you. Well, now let's change the picture back to him coming to live in your heart. And here, picture your heart as a home that has many rooms in it. Are any of those rooms off-limits to Jesus? Or at least you hope they are. Or you hope that, well, that's a secret passage and I hope he never finds it. He's king of kings. Doesn't he have authority to go wherever he wants? But do we treat him that way? Now, I'm not suggesting that you can actually keep Jesus out of a room he wants to go into, right? If he wants to go into an area of your heart, he's going to go there. Okay, and you've heard me talk about that. It's like you might try to keep the door shut, but he'll kick the door in if he has to. He's going in. But we tend to think in ways it's almost like we've declared those as off limits to Jesus. You see, Christ didn't move into your heart to take a holiday. He moved in to take over. We need to understand that. But we don't live that way. We often live as if Jesus is tucked away somewhere in our heart and he doesn't see all the other mess that is there. 
His plan is to transform every part of you. And he starts from the inside and works his way out. He plans to transform all of it, including the the external. But he starts inside, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. He transforms us at the very deepest level, the way you think, what you desire, what you love, how you respond, what you choose, what motivates you, what excites you how you think about His authority over you, how you think about His laws, how you think about it, what is it that motivates you to obey. Greg taught us recently about how to pray Scripture, and here's another good example of how to do that. So, in this, what you have on the slide now, the the main point of this message can be, should be for us, one of the requests that we take to the Lord and pray for ourselves and pray for one another. So pray for God to give each of us inner strength so that Christ will keep expanding His controlling influence in our hearts. So that is something we can pray, that God would give each of us. And so as you pray for your brother and sister in Christ, say, Lord, I pray for, name them, that you would give them inner strength. And I pray that you'd give them inner strength with this goal in mind so that Christ will be able to keep expanding His controlling influence in their heart. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for each other. You see, we are strengthened in our inner man so that we provide an environment that's conducive to yieldedness to God. You see, if He is going to live in our hearts, and if He is, and He is Lord, He is King, He's the Master, that means we have to yield to Him. And so if, again, thinking in that kind of house analogy, if He says, okay, this room, everything has to change here. We've got to change, you know, the walls, we've got to change the paint, we need to redecorate, we need to do all this, you know. You have to yield to Him because He's the King of Kings. And so we need that that environment of yieldedness to Him. So pray that we will each be prepared to better submit to His rule. Now, yes, He is King, and, you know, we, we ultimately will obey Him. But what we're talking about here is how to do the Christian life. One of the ways we look at doing the Christian life and, and it's, it shouldn't be all the time where we're, we're, you know, we're obeying, but we're kicking and screaming all along the way. We want an environment in our heart. We want our inner man to be such that when the Lord says, okay, we're doing this now, and we say, yes, Lord, I'm happy to do that. I'm scared to death, but I'm trusting in you. Or, well, that's going to be hard, Lord. You know how much is going to have to change in me? He says, yes, I do, and okay, yes, we'll do that, Lord. That's the kind of environment that we want, and that's what we're talking about here this morning. This is what Paul is praying for. So, you remember when we started chapter 3, Paul felt the need to pray for them. And he started praying, but he didn't get very far, did he? Just like, just part way through that first sentence as he's praying, he's like, okay, time out. I, I need to tell you more. And so he did. 
And so we have that section from verses 2 through 13 that digression where he says, okay, I need, to, I need to give you some more theology, some more background to what I was just talking about in chapter 2. And so he, he put his prayer on pause. Now, Paul resumed his prayer that he started in verse 1. So we'll see him in verse 14 resume to pick that up. So look again, back, let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 3, Ephesians 3, 1. For this reason, and I'll get to that in a second. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, pause. Now, fast forward to verse 14. And he takes it off pause. Resume. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So what had happened here? Why he was setting out to pray is that he had just told them about that glorious truth. The truth that God had taken Jews and Gentiles, people who there were no two groups of people that were more hostile to one another in history. And he brought them together and he made them remarkably into one new man. One new organism that he could call it a new man. This is something new here, which we call the church. Now, that's staggering enough, but then he goes beyond that and he says, and and what God is intending to do with this new man is it's actually becoming this holy temple. And that temple, guess what? It's going to be the eternal dwelling place of God. Okay, so for him to talk about glorious truths like that, and he's thinking, okay, with such glorious truths, there comes some really enormous responsibility. You know, so as he's as he's dictating this letter, probably. And he's getting, and he finishes chapter two, and he's thinking, "Boy, I just, I just dropped a bomb on them. Glorious!" And he's going to, he's going to praise God at the end of chapter three. And so there is welling up within him this, this worship. This is amazing what God is doing in the church. What the church's purpose is. But, he's also, oh my. (laughs) You know, I, I know where I'm going with this, Paul. Because what we know is chapters 4 through 6 is how to apply all that. He's given all this wonderful theology wonderful truth in chapters 1 through 3. And he's not quite finished. But he's thinking about the enormous responsibility they now will have. They can't plead plead ignorance anymore. This is who you are as the church and this is what you must be. This is where God's going with this. And I'm going to have to tell you, I'm going to give you a lot of work to do. Chapters 4 through 6. But, he's thinking, 
they can't do this. We, we can't. Do, we don't have what it takes in ourselves, by ourselves, to do this. Right, so I need to pray for them. I need to pray for them because they are going to need the power of God to do this. That's the only way it will happen. That is, the, that is the only way to take these two formerly hostile groups, put them together, and to take every one of them as a sinner... Yes, saved by grace, but they're still sinners and, and the sin is still being dealt with. And they're still sinning against each other. And for them to become what God wants them to become, they can't do that. They need the power of God. And so I need to pray for them. And that's what he's doing here. And so he started praying. He said, wait a minute, I've got a little bit more information to give you. And he does that in chapter 3. And then in verse 14, he gets back to, okay, now, let's go back to my prayer. And... What we have here is a beautiful prayer that, that hits a high point with the praise in verses 20 and 21. And so he's praying for them to be able to apply everything. He's going to tell them how to do it, but he knows they don't have the power to do it without the power of God. Okay, So 4 through 6 is going to be how you do this, but you have to go into that thinking... And I'm going to need the power of God at every step of the way. Okay? <clears throat> so, he says, <clears throat> I bow my knees before the Father. The normal posture for prayer among the Jews, and this is, we don't think in this way, but it is standing. That is normally how they would pray. They would stand. And, and typically they would look up to heaven uh, as they prayed. You know, for us... We often, probably more often than not, pray sitting. Uh, we may pray kneeling. But kneeling was not the normal posture. Kneeling was something that you did, either kneeling or lying prostrate, like on the floor or on the ground. Those were, they did do that, but that said something. It reflected an earnestness. And if you think about when we're praying to God, we're praying to the King of Kings... And so, it is right for us, and we don't have to do it every time. He doesn't demand that. But at times, it is right for us to show Him reverence, uh, to express our humility, and then also, as I said, to express earnestness. And so, what Paul is saying basically here in verse 14 is, I humbly and earnestly pray. Okay? To whom? Okay, verse 15. It says... Okay, before the Father, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Okay, and that's one of those head-scratching verses. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Okay, well, it, 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 I think it'll come out a little clearer here. Um, for some reason... Your translation probably, because they pretty much all do, translate this one word, family, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. <clears throat> the word is probably better. It can be translated family, so it's not wrong. But I think what Paul has in mind here is a word play. Okay? And so you'll see on the slide, so father here is a form of pater. Okay, father, Greek, okay. 
Um, and then the other word, family, in your translation probably, is patria, which is means basically fatherhood. And so you can see there's a word play. Pater, so I'm praying to the pater from whom every patria derives its name. Okay, and most of the translations go with family. I think it'd be better to go with fatherhood because it makes more sense, I think, to what he's trying to get across here. Okay, what he's saying is that all fatherhood comes from God. He is the original father. The whole idea of father, you see, and a lot of times I know in counseling, we have to help people turn things back right side up because a lot of times they will say, well, you know, a lot of folks don't have a, a godly father, didn't have a godly father growing up. And and so they think, well, I have a hard time understanding God as father because I, I, I think about what my father was like. That's upside down. What we have to do is, is turn it back right side up because all fatherhood comes from God. And so every father that there has ever been or ever will be is supposed to follow that um, original, you know, um, what am I trying to say? Well, to follow the original and not a copy of the original. Everything else is a copy of the original, okay? <clears throat> He's saying that God is the father of all fathers. He's the greatest of all fathers, and so the idea here is, he, as he's praying, is saying, to the Supreme Father do I bring my request. See, he's wanting us to understand, this is the one I'm bringing my request to because I, I've got a really tall order for you guys in chapters 4 through 6, based on chapters 1 through 3. And so I'm taking my request to the Father of all fathers. And, and he's going to kind of spell that out a little bit, but the idea is that I'm taking this to the one who actually can answer this, these prayers, these requests. And, and he'll, he'll show us why. Now, the second main point, we're going to start it this time and we'll, we'll continue next time with it. But Paul made three requests for believers in verses 16 through 19. Those three requests are for strength, for love, and for fullness. Now, let me, let me tell you a little bit about this passage. So, this is one of the harder passages in Ephesians to, to really be able to dissect it and say, this is exactly what's going on. This is what the, the prayer or prayers or and how many prayer requests are there. That's hard. Okay, so, a little bit of background. Um, I pulled out my exegetical paper from my Greek class in Ephesians from seminary and went through it. And actually, I was kind of impressed with myself. It was better than I thought it would have been from back then. It was actually pretty good. And But when I selected that passage, and they let us pick which passage we were going to do our exegetical paper. Exegetical means I'm going through interacting with all the Greek and everything, right? And I picked it because it's a beautiful passage. And as soon as I picked it, and I signed up for it, I sat down and started looking at it in Greek, and I'm like, oh my goodness. This was a huge mistake. 
Because I'm looking at this, I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this. And 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 one of the hardest things, okay, one thing that was hard is what I'm going to try to lay out for you briefly here this time and next, what the actual, what's the structure of the passage. But just think about in the praise, or the, the last part of verse 19, he's praying that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Do you think you could explain that? Okay, how can you be filled up with the fullness of God? You're finite and He's infinite, right? Infinite, infinite. So I I knew I was in trouble. And I wrestled and I prayed a lot, which was probably God's plan. Lord, I need your help because I have no idea what Paul's praying. I mean, I kind of know, but I kind of don't, you know. And, And so as I worked through it, hammered through it, then it kind of, it it started making sense. And I'm like, okay, now I'm back to loving the passage. It's it's a beautiful passage. And I I love, well, okay, so now fast forward to to the past few weeks, and I'm jumping in again, and I I read my paper, and I'm like, okay, good stuff. But I don't agree with everything that I said, as as far as the structure. The meaning's the same, but the structure was a little different. And then I, I thought, yeah, I think it's this. And then I started feeling a little antsy because, you know, I'm disagreeing with me. I mean, you know, it's like, he seemed to be a pretty smart guy back then, you know. So I looked at the commentaries, and they're all over the map. They all disagree with each other. And they ended up disagreeing with me. So... So anyhow, I, I went with what I think is this most straightforward from a Greek perspective, and I'm not going to go into all that detail and bore you with that. If you want to know, we can talk later if you're geeky like me. But that this is a tough passage. But if we work our way through it, it, is, it will yield wonderful results. And we will come away being uh, better at praying, but also, I hope, better at depending on God. I hope that we see this, this idea of we need to have this yield in this before God. Okay? So let me read through the prayer. And I'm going I'm to show you where I'm making the breaks. And, and for you, those of you geeks, I break it on the henna clauses. Okay? So if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But some of you know. Okay? I think it's the most straightforward way. And this is what I did. Okay? I think Paul is saying this. Verse 16, so he said, I'm, I'm praying that God, he would grant you, according to, and this is going to be the first prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that, here's the reason for the first prayer, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stop. That's prayer number one. Okay, and that's what we're going to look at today. Okay? Prayer number two. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Stop. That is kind of a two-part, but it's one prayer, I think. Okay? For you geeks, it's one henna clause. Okay? And then the third prayer that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So he's praying first for strength, praying for or about love, and we'll explain that more next time. 
and then praying for fullness. Okay? So now let's jump into prayer request number one for strength. He prays that they, we, would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, according to the riches of His glory. Okay, so this word for strengthened, it described being strengthened by exercise. There's different words for for being strengthened and training and discipline and all these words. This one means strengthened by exercise, by doing exercise, okay? And so... God puts us through spiritual workouts. We're going to come back. We're going to develop this as we go through. So there's that general uh, idea of God putting us through spiritual workouts. What more can we learn about this strength that he's praying for? And this will be very fruitful for us, okay, to step through. First, this strengthening is a gift from God. So here he's going to, and Paul in Ephesians loves power words, doesn't he? You remember in chapter 1 there were four of them, then we just recently saw two again repeated, and then now here's two more, and one of them's a repeat. So <clears throat> this is the first power word he's going to use in this prayer. So this strengthening is a gift from God. He prayed for God to give this to them or to grant it to them. Because God is the one who strengthens us. He doesn't say, okay, guys, I, I need you to get into the spiritual gymnasium and, and go work out. Go do it. God is the one who will actually be strengthening you. Okay? So it's a gift from God. Second, it is furnished, this strength is furnished according to God's inexhaustible resources. It's furnished according to God's inexhaustible resources. We shouldn't take this as he's going to provide out of his wealth. So in other words, he's got all of his wealth, his riches, and and out of that he's he's giving. That's that's true, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He says it's according to the standard of, which is why your translation probably has, according to his riches or something like that, right? It's according to the standard of his spiritual wealth, if you will. In other words, he gives generously. And he calls them the riches of his glory, the riches of of God's glory. And and F.F. Bruce said that God's glory is the sum total of all his attributes. So when, when we think of his glory, it's not just like, if we see God in heaven and, and His glory is shining, I mean, that is true, but the idea is it's that His glory is, is who He is. If you take all of His attributes and you pull them all together, that's His glory. That's who God is, and it's the sum total of all of that. And so, <clears throat> who He is sets the standard for how He gives who He is sets the standard for how He gives, you see. So what He's saying is that His glory, all of His attributes together sets the standard. In other words, He's not stingy. As I said, He's generous. And and this is a good thing to pray. As, you, as you're praying this or other prayers for yourself and others. So, Lord, I pray for Brother So-and-so that You would strengthen him. And I pray that You would bring all of Your spiritual resources to bear on Him to make this happen. You know, it's kind of like the Lord, do what you have to do, 
whatever it takes to get through to him. Well, this is kind of parallel to that. This is, Lord, bring everything to the table to pour out on them in order to make this happen, to answer this prayer, to grow them here in strength. Like God, His riches are inexhaustible. Number three, this strength is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the second power word that he uses in this prayer. It's accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is, we've seen this word at least twice now, um, dunamis, we get dynamite from that word, uh, potential power. And he's not saying that it's not active, but what he's saying is that, here I'm thinking about all of God's attributes, His glory, and that all of those resources are coming out of that. So as I'm thinking about all of that, I'm thinking of the potential power in that, right? Dunamis. And so, it has that potential just like a stick of dynamite. When you light it, light the fuse, then, you know, you see the power. Okay, so what he's saying here is that uh, there's all this power. And I'm praying, Lord, that, that you, by your Spirit, will put that to use here in these believers' lives. And so that power comes, it, it's worked through the Holy Spirit. Our spiritual strength increases as the Holy Spirit exercises us. Remember that word for strengthen. Puts us through a regimen, an exercise regimen. And through that, He causes spiritual growth. And we're going to, I'm going to suggest uh, a few things that the Spirit uses to do this as a regimen when we get to the end. Okay. Number four. It takes place in the inner man. This is where the spiritual strengthening goes on. It takes place in the inner man. And he's talking about the inner part of man. Man is in two parts, okay? He's, he's, we say dichotomous is a theological term, okay? There's two, two parts. There's an inner man and an outer man, okay? The inner man, we have a lot of different names for it. You know, typically, uh, mind and heart, sometimes soul, um, and then we sometimes will, just in our understanding, kind of divide that up. But the inner man is, is the opposite of the physical. You know, this is what, you know, you can only see my outer man right now. You see my hands, my face, and all. And, and I'm sorry, but, you know, the, you only see that. You, don't, you can't see the inner man, okay? He's talking about the inner man here. The inner man is the mind, the heart. It's where thinking happens, decision-making, where our motive uh, resides, our will where our emotions take place. It is our moral, spiritual, and intellectual center. It's where we apply our moral character to whatever we face. So things happen in life, your experiences, the trials, all that, good stuff, bad stuff, all of that. And so that happens, when it happens to us, then who we are on the inside, our moral character, our spiritual character responds to that. Okay? And all of that ha- takes place, the... the uh, decision-making, the choice on how I'm going to respond happens there. Let's talk about this inner man for a little bit, though. Uh, Paul said elsewhere, Romans 7, for example, um, and in other pa- passages putting this together, that you know God's laws were once written on tablets of stone. Okay, and the New Testament talks about that, reflecting that Old Testament truth. God actually wrote out the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. 
But the New Testament says, okay, that the God's law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It's written on the tablets of the human heart. In other words, and a lot of passages talk about that, that God's law is now written on our heart, on our inner man. Okay? What that means, and there's, it means a number of different things, but one of the things it means here is that the law now, God's law now, influences us because it is there inside. It is there in our decision-making center. You see, so instead of them being, okay, so, so okay, what do these Ten Commandments say and, and read it off the stone and, okay, now get it in here. Now the law is in there and it's actually working on me. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is using that. And First uh, Thessalonians 2.13, God's Word has its own power. Okay, so you get the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God, and, and there, and that God's Word is His law. They're, they're working on me, okay? They're influencing me on the inside where I need to be influenced. And so in Romans 7 that I referred to, it is here in the inner man, Paul says, that he joyfully concurs with God's law. You see, so... What happens is in this inner man, now that we have the Holy Spirit in us, now that we have God's law in us, it gives us, it influences us so that we desire to do His law. And so that's what Paul talks about there in Romans 7. I want to do God's law, but then I don't go do it. You know, and I don't want to disobey Him, but then I go and disobey And there's that, that wrestling. But you see, it's happening in His inner man because the, the God's law is there uh, having an influence on Him. And He said, I, I want to do that. Okay. That happens in our inner man when we are saved. Another thing about this inner man that Paul talks about elsewhere, this strengthening of our inner man takes place every day. Okay, So it's not, you don't think of yourself as, okay, I'm going to go through this exercise regimen spiritually and then eventually I'll get to the point where I don't have to exercise anymore. Okay, That's not the way it works. 2 Corinthians 4.16 It's being renewed every day. So, picture it this way, and I've got an illustration for you, just a real simple one here, uh, a silly one, hopefully it'll stick in your brain and you'll remember this. So, the Holy Spirit, through His power, puts our inner man through an exer- exercise regimen, okay? And, and so, what you can do is picture um, Him putting us through a workout, just like if you go to a, a personal trainer at the gym, you know, they're going to say, okay, what we're going to work on today is your core. And then tomorrow we'll come back and we'll work on your upper body and then we'll work on your lower body. You know, and we'll do these, this, the regimen I'm going to put you through. The Holy Spirit likewise puts us through a workout. He has a regimen for us and He works on these bit by bit. Okay, that, and this is just a picture. Okay. If you want to know what your inner man looks like, that's what it looks like there. So. <clears throat> Which is better than the guy laying on a couch, you know, eating bonbons, right? So, this is more hopeful. The Holy Spirit puts us through specific spiritual workouts to strengthen our inner man. Okay? Now, last thing we learned about this strength. We, we need to know why. It is for the purpose of Christ taking possession of more and more of us. It is for the purpose of Christ taking possession of more and more of us. So looking again at our passage. Pray that they be strengthened, verse 16, and then verse 17, here's why. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And we'll stop there because the rest of that goes to the second prayer request. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. This word for dwell has the idea of settling down, taking residence, taking up residence. It's more intense than the some of the other usual words for living in something, living somewhere, dwelling somewhere. This one's more intense. <clears throat> Think about here, you know, some of you, uh, you know, you're, you're renting right now while you, you, you're getting, you know, you hope to settle down. But where you're renting, if it's an apartment or a house, or something, you're not going to do a whole lot. I mean, you keep it clean, mow the yard, you know, as a homeowner, hopefully that's what you're doing, right? If you're my neighbor. Um, but you're not doing a whole lot. I mean, you're not going to knock out walls and redecorate a whole lot. But when you finally buy that house, you want to make it yours. You want it to reflect your tastes. And so you might knock out walls and you might re- replace floors and you might, you know, put in a new kitchen and everything and do all that, okay? Because it's now it's yours, okay? That's what this this uh, word is describing. More, It's more like home ownership where you're making it your own. Now, okay, so here's one of those things that's a little tricky about this passage. Were you thinking this? He's talking, he's praying for believers. Praying that Christ will dwell in your heart. Did you mentally scratch your head? Like, um, thought Christ does already dwell in my heart. And you said that at the beginning, John. So what's he praying for? Okay, see, see, see my pain? Yeah. You, you got to work through all of this, but it, it, it's good to work through it and yields really wonderful results. So he's praying for Christians who already have Christ dwelling in them. What he's praying is that Christ will be increasingly at home in their hearts. He uses the word hearts here, same as same idea as inner man in the previous verse. Okay, just two different synonyms. Okay. What he means is that he's praying that Jesus will exert more and more control in our hearts. He's praying that the master of the house, that is Jesus, not you, will exercise more control. Jesus intends to become the controlling factor in our inner man. That's where he's going with all of this. He doesn't save us and say, okay, you're on your own. Knock yourself out. You know, do what you want and hopefully you get it right. He's like, no, I want you to become like me. Not, not that we're all carbon copies exactly of Jesus, but that we will be pleasing to him. That's where he's going with this. He will be the controlling factor. And, you know, and if you think about New Testament theology particularly, you have this idea of Christ living in us, but also you have the Holy Spirit living in us, which is, it is Christ living in us. It's just that He's in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So the Holy Spirit brings glory to Christ. He's working for Christ's ends, His His glory. You see, so it can be Christ in us, or we might call it the Holy Spirit living in us. Think about Romans 7 and 8, where He talks about um, the law of the Spirit. In other words, that, that principle of the new life. Okay? All different ways of thinking about this same thing. There's this controlling influence in us. Okay? And 
And that is important for us to understand. <clears throat> so with going back to it kind of in, in a picture, Christ moves into your heart. He might knock out some walls, renovate, repaint, restore. Now, it's just those are just pictures, but what He's actually doing is this. His renovating work changes our thinking, our motives, our attitudes, and our desires just to name a few, so that we will be more pleasing to Him. That's the goal. He's working in order to make us on the inside more pleasing to Him. So that when you have that room where you say, okay, you know, Jesus, um, don't go in there, please. Please, I've, I've nailed it shut. and I've got all kinds of bars and stuff on that. Please don't go in there. And as we become more pleasing to Him, we say, okay, you know, Jesus, will you help me with that room? Because there's some big ugly stuff in there. And, and I've fooled myself into thinking that you don't know what's in there, but you know what's in there because you know better than I do what's in there. But I can't deal with that. I need you to come in there with me and deal, help me deal with it. That's when we become more pleasing to Him. <clears throat> so He does this by exerting greater and greater control over our inner man so that we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20 which we read earlier, Brent read for us, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. This is the same concept of Christ living in me. And John Calvin said that this phrase, Christ lives in me, consists in His governing us by His Spirit and directing all our actions. That doesn't mean that He's got us like puppets and He's pulling the strings. It's not that at all. What He's doing is He comes in and He's... he's you know, working on everything, renovating everything in our hearts so that whenever we're faced with a decision, we choose what we should choose. We choose what would please Him. And that is what He's doing. That's how He's renovating us. You see, so as you've heard me say before, you know, that uh, kind of make up that term, your wanter. You know, He's, you know, in a sense, He gave you a brand new wanter when you were saved. But sadly, that that wanter gets corrupted really quickly. And so what he's doing through this is he's reforming it, he's renovating it, renewing it, so that your wants become the things that please him. So Paul prayed that they would be given more strength. And this is, this is the part that initially is kind of hard to understand. He gave He's praying that they'll be given more strength so that... Their inner man improves. In what way? It improves into an environment that yields to Christ's controlling influence. You're saying, okay, John, I have to become stronger so that I can yield better? Isn't yieldedness weakness? Isn't submission weakness? Ladies, submission's weakness, right? Okay, I'm seeing no's being nodded good. You got it right. Yieldedness and submission are not weak. Now, there are forms of those that are fleshly. You know, there's, there's fleshly submission that is weakness. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about godly, biblical, transformed yieldedness or submission. Yieldedness or submission is not a result of growing weaker... Yieldedness is the result of growing spiritually stronger. So when you see a godly woman submitting to her husband, 
in a godly way, it's a result of her spiritual growth, her spiritual strength. And that's what we need to hold up to the world because they look at those things and say, oh, that's just a sign of weakness. And we say, no, it's not at all. It's a sign of strength. And, and so for all of us, which is what this, is, this applies to, is that yieldedness is the result of growing spiritually stronger. Well, this requires faith, and that's what he prays for. Because this is not easy. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you develop this, this environment of yieldedness to Christ's rule it has to be done by faith. Through this, we are strengthened by the power of God's Spirit to increasingly yield ourselves to Christ's influence and control. The spiritual, this personal spiritual growth. Now, another thing that's difficult is that the whole context has been corporate, right? He's been talking about what this change that happened to them corporately when we got into chapter 2. There's the first personal and then corporate, and we've been in corporate. We're still in corporate, you know, like the whole body of Christ, okay? not just me. But this passage, this prayer seems to be talking about me, you, individual, and it is. That's because the individual is important for the whole. This personal spiritual growth, that is the growth in each one of us personally, provides for the growth of the local church body. The church will not grow apart from the individual growth of its members. So if none of us grow spiritually, this church will not grow spiritually. That's what, he, that's what we need to take away from this, okay? So, what do we do with all this? Paul prayed for God to give us inner strength. This is kind of recap. So that Christ will keep expanding His controlling influence in our hearts. And if we're to respond by faith, then what do we do? Okay? What do we do? We'll work on the following responses that I'm going to list and make these a matter of prayer for yourself and for others. Number one, humbly trust that Christ knows what He's doing. I know it can be terribly uncomfortable submitting to Christ. Now, I know part of you is saying, well, no, it, you know, we should trust Christ. And you know. Yeah, right. Okay. If you really let go, not, I, mean, I don't mean let go and let God, but you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to let go of my, you know, I'm doing it my way kind of thing, and I'm going to yield to you and follow you and do it your way. That is scary. That is very uncomfortable. Because, you know, because you know he'll say, okay, well then, I want you to do this. And you're, mm-hmm. I'm scared to death to do that. And that's uncomfortable. And, and so I know. And see, this all requires faith, right? But trust that Jesus is doing what is best. When he says, okay, follow me here. And you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. You know, you know what's best. I can't see it right now. Let's remember you know, this talking honestly to God that Terry taught us about in Sunday school. Lord, I'm scared to death. I can't see how this is good. But I know you're good and you only do good, so I'm going to follow you. That's faith. Number two, and this also requires faith. Learn to depend on Christ's strength. Learn to depend on Christ's strength. Paul learned this, and he tells us about it more in 2 Corinthians 12. 
He wants us there to learn to view our weaknesses as, as opportunities for God to be strong through us. When you learn to submit to God's strength when you're weak, Paul said there, or God told Paul, that God's power is perfected. What does that mean, perfected? It means that His power comes to full force on our behalf. So you see, when you say, okay, you know, God, I just need a little bit of help doing this, then that's not going to be true. You're not going to, you're not going to experience 2 Corinthians 12. You say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. I, I'm willing to do what you called me to do. And I'm going to do it by faith. But I know I can't do it. I need your strength to do this. And then remember, that's what he's praying here. For the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen them. And so when we do that, we depend on Him, then what happens is God's power comes to full force. Okay? It's sort of like, this is not, the illustrations never are perfect, but you know those, those automatic doors at the hospital or wherever, you know, some buildings, and you, you just touch it and all of a sudden it just takes over. So there's a sense in which it's like that. Okay? So we still have to do what He's told us to do, but we're saying, okay, Lord, you have to be that motor to make it actually happen. Okay, I need your strength to flow through me. And what happens is God's strength does flow through us, and it actually brings about these changes, this growth. Number three, learn to view your experiences from His perspective. So whenever, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Any, everything that happens to you, good, bad, otherwise, see them as the work of His Spirit putting you through spiritual exercises. Okay? I don't know about you, if you've ever had you know, a trainer work with you at the gym, and they okay, I want you to do this, and you try that, and oh, that hurts. No. <laughs> no. There are things that you encounter in life, it's just like, hmm. Right? Well, learn to view it as, this is the Holy Spirit putting me through a regimen. He's growing me, strengthening me on the inside. Number four. This should result in more consistent obedience. If Christ is living in you, remember Galatians 2.20, this passage, and especially Galatians 2.20, then His pattern of perfect obedience will become increasingly yours. See, that's where we're going with this, is that we become more obedient consistently, right? As you submit more to Jesus, your Lord, He will exercise more control and you will obey Him more consistently and perfectly. That is one of the things that should come out of this. So as you pray this for yourself and others, Lord, I pray that we will submit ourselves to Jesus as the one who is our Lord. I pray for my sister that she will submit to Jesus, her Lord. And as she does that, he will exercise more control. Therefore, she will obey him more consistently. Well, as we turn our attention now to our worship at the Lord's Supper, remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16. He was getting ready to die. They're troubled. And he's helping them with that. One of the things he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because as it was with, with Jesus there physically with them, 
He could not be inside of them in their heart, in their inner man, and He couldn't be in every one of them at the same time. He says, it's for your advantage that I go away. Because what I'm going to do, when I go back to my Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Pentecost. And guess what? I will be living in every one of you. I will be inside you, and I'll be in every one of you. It is to your advantage that I go away. And that wonderful, glorious blessing of having the gift of the Holy Spirit is made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is that death that we think about here at the Lord's table.